This is Adam Lippy, writer, editor, publisher of RegrettableSincerity.com, and this is a both podcast and a separate Q&A with uh, the director of 127 Hours and Train Spotting and Slumdog Millionaire, Danny Boyle. Now, the first part is a 20-minute roundtable with myself, Sal Canestra, David Onda, Blair Flory, and Steve, whose last name I can't remember, but who asked that question about uh, music within Danny Boyle films. So, oh, and the the other uh, people um, I've replaced, and you, I'm not hiding that I've replaced it. You'll be able to tell because the sound levels changes, the sound level changes, be, and which is the exact reason that I did not combine the audience Q and A with the roundtable because the change in the audio was so drastic that it would not have match at all and it just would have been terribly distracting so the second part which is longer than the first part came right after a screening of the movie uh the round table was the next day and uh, carrie ricky from the philadelphia choir does the first 10 minutes of q a with danny and you get some overlap between what occurred at the round table and what she asked and some of the audience asked but you get more in-depth answers because it was more time uh, you'll also get to know um, how much of James Franco's stoned act is real in person, apparently. Um, the question that I asked that, uh, you know, that I did ask at the time of the roundtable was uh, about how I kind of felt that the movie was holding back. And he does sort of address that in the Q&A uh, afterwards about you know, how far you can go uh, before an audience gets too squeamish and you know, can't sit through it anymore. He also discusses what it's like to, to try to create a suspenseful movie where everyone already knows the ending. So there'll be 18 minutes of the first part of the interview, and then I will segue between the two, and then there'll be uh, about 28 or 29 minutes of the Q&A. Uh, I've adjusted the sound level, so it should all be... You, you can hear pretty much every word. Danny's answers sort of make it obvious what he's saying, what the questions were. Enjoy. The lead character is very uh, risk-taking. It takes a lot of risks. Do you consider yourself a risk-taker? Oh, very good question. I was expecting to say, what drew you to this project? <laughs> no, no. <laughs> um, no it's, uh, he is very interesting. It's very interesting. The question of risk is very interesting. One of the things we changed, because people say, it's very factual, the film, but we did make some changes. One of the things we changed is that we... That scene where he goes swimming with the girls at the beginning. In the real story, he did meet these two girls who he called his, these angels that were sent to save him, to take him out of the canyon and take him to a party instead. And he said, no. But they didn't go swimming, they went climbing. And what we did is, by swimming, is we, we did it for multiple reasons. One of which was we, it was we wanted to saturate the opening of the film with water, which he was going to be robbed of later. And we wanted to create a sensual, erotic image that kind of was his comfort and in the girls' voices and the girls' bodies and just water dripping off, you know, when he looked at back on it on the videotape. Mm-hmm. But the third thing is that what he does is incredibly dangerous, taking them to that place. Sure. And they get away with it, so nobody thinks about it. But actually, he is very, very reckless. And he, in the book... He admits that there was an, in the past there was an avalanche where he nearly killed two of his friends. And his friends, those friends have never, who were close friends have never spoken to him since. And so we compressed all that information about him into a sequence that's very pleasurable and great fun. And you put great music on it and it's terrific. So the question of risk and recklessness is really important to him. In terms of me, I guess this really, in the sense that 
you know, people are expecting a lot after Slumdog and things like that. And what you try and do is do something that, you know, I was just saying the only reason it got financed is because of the success of Slumdog. It would never have been because it's a very difficult prospect, the movie. And I think now because of Franco's performance, people think, oh, no, it's not, you know, it's pretty watchable. And, you know, it's like, you know, maybe people will go and see it. But I think back then they thought nobody in their right mind apart from a bunch of critics, will turn up and watch that movie. Nobody's going to go and see it. And the critics only go because it's free and they have to. And, you know. Um, so I guess that is the risk, really, I, I guess, yeah. Fuller Flory, in all of your films, I feel like you have a very interesting way of doing different camera angles and different, you know, flashes, mm. and I feel like it's very distinct, even though this movie's so different than Slumdog in context. What is, is that just your style, or how are you motivated to do that, or...? thoughts on that. I'm very kind of visually driven. I like um, experimenting visually. I like using the cameras. I like using digital cameras because you can use them in places that you can't with the film camera. I like trying to look at stuff that you haven't seen before. I hate that feeling of, oh, I've done that already or seen that. You know, try and refresh it and renew it. It was particularly important in this film because there's only one guy through the centre of it. So I thought it was very interesting that it was it had to be really stimulating the camera work and the way that it was photographed. And, and I had this premise that it was an action movie about a guy who can't move. And I was always adamant that it was an action movie. Because that's one of the extraordinary things that keeps him alive, is that he is full of a constant attempt to do something about it. Get up. Never give up. Do it. Try. So that, and that gives an energy to the thing, you know, and we try to make it in that way. And part of that is visual stimulation, different surprises, you know. So you go from a huge close-up of an ant, you know, mega close-up of an ant. I could never quite get close enough to those ants, wanting them bigger and bigger. I wanted them to look like a big JCB digger. What do you call JCB diggers here? You know, that dig up the road, those big claw things that you have a different word for. We call them JCBs, hmm? Bulldozers. What do they call them, those things, and they scoop them? They call us a bulldozer, we call them a JCB. Dig up the, I wanted it to look as big as a JCB and... You know, that's what the, so I'd have a picture of a JCB in the photo file we use to give everyone. I said, I want the ant to look that big. and You know, it's stuff like that, really, just to keep stimulating everyone and, and yourself, you know. Last night during the Q&A, you mentioned that uh, you had to balance sort of softening the material to make it palatable for the mainstream audience. And what I found interesting is that he seems, he's in pain the whole time, but he's only in extreme pain right at the beginning and, right, and then when he's cutting off his arm. Yeah. What, how do you that find... That was true, actually. He didn't, he didn't feel anything. The, the, the arm was numb after the initial bang. You know, he felt nothing. And he, in fact, he speculated that it was, you know, it's pretty dead already. It's gone, you know. And uh, that helped him, of course, initially try to cut it off when he fails and mm -hmm. it doesn't, he won't cut through he kind of feels it's dead already. In fact, had he succeeded then, he would have certainly died because his blood loss would have been much greater by the time he'd hiked out of there. So that's one of the ironies of the story. His blood had thickened so much, he was on the verge of a heart attack. And that's why it's trying to convey these ideas are very difficult when you've got nobody to talk to. So that's why we have him manipulating his heart the whole time because he's like, he feels like he's on the edge of a stroke, you know, very, very close and he, indeed he thought he was, you know, and, and that saved him because the blood, he didn't lose a lot of blood. Well, he lost a lot of blood, but he didn't lose enough to kill him before he met the Dutch, the Dutch family. Yeah. You sort of made um, a, a mixture of films that are sort of more distinctly European and this one's a little more 
you know, American. Is it? It's an American story. <laughs> yes, yeah, it is. And, and those films play differently to American audiences and European audiences. Yeah. Is that something you're aware of or something that you calculate when you're picking a film? Interesting. I don't know what... Do they play differently? I don't know. I think people are basically the same. They, they bang on in Europe about bloody Hollywood dominating the world. <laughs> the reason people go to Hollywood movies is because they enjoy them. They don't go because they've been kind of hypnotised into liking American rubbish. <laughs> they go because they just enjoy them more than anything else and sometimes they are shit and sometimes they're wonderful and they're not foolish, they can usually tell the difference. But, you know, you work in a garage all week. On Friday night, you do not want to go to a movie and be lectured. You prefer to go and see a piece of shit. You know, and it's fine. It's a piece of shit. You go and have a pizza afterwards and it's a piece of shit. But sometimes you go and it's amazing. You know, like Toy Story 3 or something like that. And it's like, I don't know whether there is a big difference, but I know that one of the reasons I did the movie, because I've been very reluctant to do American films because I don't feel qualified, because I want to know, if it got a character, I want to know how he grew up. I, want to know, I don't want anybody else answering those questions for me. When people say, what sort of car should he have? Now, if it's a British character, I know exactly what sort of car that kind of character would have. I sort of know that cold, because I grew up there and I lived there. I don't know that cold here. And, but this project was outside that, because most of it was not about those issues. It wasn't about the society. You know, it was actually about... It's an existential film, really, in a way, isn't it? It's about just human trapped... So that made it easier for me to take it on board, really. Yeah, that's what I feel as a to, in terms of European, American. That's the main factor with me. I, I would never... Like, you get sent things like... They said to me, do you want to do Jersey Boys, the musical? Because we hear you're interested in musicals. And you go, well, <laughs> I love the music in the show. I saw the show in the West End in London, but I like... I, I wouldn't know how to direct that. What it is to grow up in Jersey, New Jersey, you know all those co- that cold that the New Jersey people have that the show's about, you know that the handshake is it. You don't need a contract. It's like when you shake. I don't know that, you know. I I wouldn't know how to. I'd be constantly going like in, to the American assistant. I'd be saying, "What they do? Is that right?" You know, there's no way to direct a film, you know. Yeah. Um, music's a big part of your movies. Yeah. And I noticed that A.H. Raman did the score for this. Yes. What do you think he brought to the table? versus some other sort of American or British music composer? I mean, we... The standard he works at is kind of mega. He's like... It's only because he's Indian that you get him, really, because he would normally be... I mean, if he lived in our culture, he would be a classical composer. He wouldn't work on movies. But because he works in the Indian climate, which doesn't have classical composition as such, it just has movies. It dominates all... Uh, expression really movies there it means that he's interested and, and for him of course it's a great challenge to do something outside the Bollywood system obviously Slumdog was connected to Bollywood in one sense subject matter wise so this was a wonderful chance for him to do something that had no reference to that at all you know. and he's just a great composer you know he writes great tunes I love working with him he has a little studio in Tufnell Park in London and we go and work there and do the music there together, and it's a wonderful working collaboration. I really enjoy it, yeah. So, he, what does he bring to it? He's very, very close to America, actually, because Bollywood is very... Is the, the obsession with movies, the love of movies, the way it permeates life, much more so than in Europe. He's very close, you know. And they love American movies, because he's seen everything, you know, and, and knows all the composers, and so knows the language, you know, to work in. And he is... He's, you know, they call him there the Mozart of Madras, which is the town that he was born in, 
which is now called Chennai actually. The, the old British name was Madras, the Indian name is Chennai. And he, so they call him the Mozart, and Madras, and he is, he's like a Mozart. He can sort of do anything with music, really. He's sort of able to manipulate it. And yeah, just, I, just, I just, I thought that was the one thing that really drove them to be alive, and I, I was amazed by it. It's a huge part, because when you've only got one character, you're then looking at how can you provide the energy that the entry of other characters, you know, sometimes brings. You know, you're not going to be able to have Delroy Lindo or somebody else walking in, and a, a character actor who comes in and brings a different flavour. So you think one of the ways you do it is music, you know, the, the, the energy of the film, and that's picked music like Bill Withers and Plastic Bertrand, you know, or or it's um, you know A.R. Rahman, you know, writing invisible music that actually does drive the thing along. Yeah, the video that Aaron makes, yes. by sort of saying goodbye. Uh, you know, I understand this is something that. Only certain family and friends have seen. Yes, that. very few people. Yeah. Right, and, and you and, uh, and James Franco had access to this. When you were deciding what was going to be on the screen for everyone to see, was Aaron involved in that discussion? Were there, or, or is it closer to the spirit of what was on the tapes, or is it? No, no, no. It's verbatim. A lot of it. Oh. We had the transcripts of it and uh, of everything he said. A lot of it's in the book. So he, he did reveal that. What he had, what he doesn't like doing is showing the tape to people. But he did show it to us eventually. And we, we departed, in, we made two major departures. One was the girls, as I said at the beginning, and the swimming. And the second one was actually his talk show host, James's talk show host, you know, when he does the multiple characters. That isn't on the tape. But the bit that follows it is when he says, Mom, Dad, when he gives up trying to entertain everyone and says, Mom, Dad, I'm having appreciated you in my heart as much as I know I could. And that's all verbatim as well. I mean, the reason we put the talk show host in was he told us, Aaron, that, and it was what was extraordinary about the tapes is that he is very composed on the tapes. He's very controlled. And, of course, you realise that what he was trying to do was leave a dignified impression of himself for his parents to see after he died because he did think he was going to die. And he thought, I don't want them to see me going... Please help me, somebody. You know, he wanted to look noble and dignified, like he was trying his best, and he loved them and stuff like that. And he said, if he ever did look, if he ever did crack and feel a bit sorry for himself, that he went back over the messages, he, he erased them in the place, and re-recorded a dignified message. And that gave us the idea of him performing in order to cheer himself up, in order to kind of persuade himself and others who might watch them that he's coping with this. You know. And so that led to the talk show host. So those are the big, those are the two major changes we made to the, the verbatim. And the rest of it is verbatim. I mean, we cut some of it, and you know, we didn't use all of it, but it, they are verbatim. Yeah. Why choose James Franco? Well, talking about the talk show host, I don't know whether we had that by the time we cast James. I can't remember, but we did know that we needed the actor not just to occupy the space, as the lead actors often do with charisma and you know and they play themselves, which often lead actors do. We needed a, like a character actor who was able to perform multiple characters. Because again, one of the ways that we can create change, as well as music and the rhythm of editing, is that the central character complaint has to keep refreshing the palate of the audience. So he has to be able to change, you know, as well as be honest. You know, it's not like just a performance thing. He also his, it's his obligation to keep you interested, really. And James is unusual amongst the lead actors here in that he does do things like, he does the straight moody stuff, you know, which you sort of expect, City by the Sea and the James Dean and even Spider-Man. But then he also does Milk, 
and then he also does Pineapple Express, stuff like that. And that's quite a range. You think, yeah, that's what we need. We need somebody with that range. We met him, first of all, in New York, and he, he often looks, as I said last night, he often looks stoned, like you're not even there. And you go, hello, James. It's like, <laughs> but it's a front, you know. It's, that is a front. He's as sharp as anything. And he's taking in every bit of information. His memory is phenomenal. So we met him again, and when we met him in LA, he had prepared a bit. We asked him to do a bit of the um, messages, and he prepared a bit of it. And it was as soon as he did it, we you kind of hear it, and you know that's him. It's him, you know. So we cast him. It was um, we'd have been dead, you know, without him. I think. Who knows? But I think we would have been dead in the water without him. And I think he was really interesting because he was very. James is right, because he does all these multiple things, you know, like books, he has books published and art yeah. exhibitions and kind of, he does directs little short films. And, so he's a kind of multitasker or he's a polymath or whatever you call it, he's into all that kind of stuff. But he was also fascinated by the process. The art, he sort of abstracts himself. He sort of, he'd talk to me and he'd say, what do you want him to do? And I'd think, what do you mean what I want him to do? And he'd sort of talk about James, like James was here and we'd be talking about it. He said, I can get him to do that, do you want him to do that? And ostensibly he'd be talking about Aaron Rolston, the character, but he wasn't. He was talking about, what do you want me to do with James Franco? And I'll do it for you. And that was really interesting, because he was interested in the process of how we arrive at being able to tell this story through just one person trapped, you know, the whole time. You know, and partly that's because he's interested in direct. I think he wants to direct, you know, full-length stuff eventually. So he was interested, always interested in the process. Even though half the time he looks like he's fast asleep. <laughs> he's not. He, he hardly seems to sleep, and the amount of work he produces, I don't think he ever goes to bed. How has the success of Slumdog Millionaire affected your working environment? Yeah, you get this terrible thing. I, I mentioned it last night. Where you, everybody calls you Mr. Boyle the whole time. <laughs> Who's that? You know, it's like um, that's a problem. And you do. It, it, there's a serious side to that as well, which is that you often can't get the truth out of people. You know, because they're too frightened to actually. They think you know what you're doing, which you don't often or always do. So you're worried about that everybody's just giving you the yes, the yes sir, no sir thing. So yeah, that's all, that's, you know, it's a nice problem to have, so, and we deal with it by, we try and work with a similar group of people that we worked with before, and, you know, and you also just have to ignore that, really, and get on with stuff. It's always temporary as well, that's the other thing. That's the other great thing which you know, is that kind of success is temporary. (laughs) Sure as anything. You said for uh, his first interview with your first interview with James that he seemed kind of stoned and out of it. <laughs> that's the bit you're using in these. Yeah. <laughs> I know that's the bit you're using. Then I'll get James saying, "You said I was stoned again. I've never changed drugs in 15 years." And, you know, anyway, sorry. Cool. No, no problem. And you said it's almost like to keep Hollywood at bay. Like yes. You said that last night. And what made you? Is that what drew you back to meet with him a second time instead of just writing him off and? I think it was kind of a, n- a number of people said, oh, you should see him again. I think he's more, I think that's just a front. I think somebody said to me, that he's always like that. It's kind of like the front he uses to stop you hiring him for the wrong reasons. It's kind of like, I think part of him, he is very handsome in a kind of Cary Grant, Clark Gable kind of way. He's got really those drop-dead good looks, you know. And I think he has that thing, which I remember Leo had them as well. Because Leo hated being the pretty boy, and because they're serious actors, they're proper actors, and they like anybody. They want to be taken seriously for their ability, not for their looks. And of course, it's always a problem in Hollywood, because part of us wants to see you want the looker, 
you know, it's like part of our thing when we see ourselves 40 feet high. We do want, we think, yeah, okay, Angelina Jolly, yeah, I'll watch her, it's fine. <laughs> and they're very, very fine actors, a lot of them, you know, and they want to, so I think that's one of the ways that he balances, he, he can sort of keep it at bay a little bit, you know, because he doesn't do the full-on thrusting, yeah, I'll do this, I'll do that, you know, he's kind of like, tries to do these art projects instead, which are often quite controversial and would not attract the Hollywood mainstream casting director, you know, so he sort of does a bit of that, I think that's how he does it, I think that's what happens with it. Thank just my theory, well. I'm not sure about it. Just my theory. Thank you, you all. Do you know what might be happening with um, Alien Love Triangle, if that's ever going to get a release? I don't know, it's such a shame, isn't it? I'd love that to be released, it's great fun, but there's never... Miramax own it, well, I don't, who knows what we want right. now. Well, Miramax did own it, but um, they let us screen it once in, in Wales for, a, for a, the last night of this very small cinema that was closing. But it's never been seen. Could you once. get as an extra on a DVD? I'd love something? it to be there, but I don't know whether they'll ever do that, whether they'll ever allow it. Like a double feature with that giving completely nude and That'd be cool, wouldn't yeah. it? Something like that. Really, really. Thanks. Thank oh. you very much. Thanks very much, everyone. And this is part two of the audience Q&A. And as I said before, the opening questions are by the Philadelphia Inquirer's critic, Terry Rickey, before she goes on to the audience. Good evening. I'm Carrie Rickey from the Philadelphia Inquirer, and I'm delighted uh, to be here tonight to uh, first ask Danny a few questions and then open it up to the audience. Um, I think this is one of the few movies I can say it's not a movie experience, it's an experience experience. And uh, Danny really puts us in the sneakers of Aaron Ralston and makes us feel what he's feeling and uh, gets us into his head. So, for starters, how did this uh, project come to you? Well, I... Um, uh I, I heard about it, I guess, like maybe a lot of you, in, in, when it first happened in 2003. And it's just one of those stories that seems to snag in your brain. Because um, I remember I was in London and I was trying to follow it. I was trying to kind of read whether there was any further news in the papers. A bit like on a different scale, obviously, like the Chilean miners at the moment, where you're kind of like looking for news constantly about what's happening. And I, I remember waiting for his press conference that he held when he came out of the hospital. There's a little glimpse of it at the, in the triptychs at the end. You see, we restaged a little bit of it. And then I read his book in 2006, and I approached him. He was on a world tour publicising the book, and he was in Holland, in Europe, and I approached him there about making a film. And I, I had this very, I had a very uh, definite idea of how I wanted to do it. And at the time, he didn't want to do it like that. He wanted to make it as a documentary, more like Touching the Void, which is that amazing film about the Joe Simpson incident, and uh, Kevin MacDonald, the British filmmaker, made it. And there's interviews, it's like... Bits of it are dramatised, it's a drama documentary, well, I guess. What was the difference between uh, your approach that you presented Aaron and Aaron? Uh, he wanted a documentary and you wanted something more impressionistic, more... No, it wasn't so much impressionistic, it was more what I call like first-person immersive, which is that I, I said to him, the only way you will ever get, you will ever be, a, you will be able to portray the cutting off of the arm and get people to watch it outside of a horror context is if you actually make them part of the experience where they wanted to cut it off or are prepared to tolerate it happening in order to get him out of there. And I, th I said the way to do that is that you have to go into the canyon with him as the audience and you stay with him and you don't cut away and you don't do wilderness shots and you don't do 
uh, interviews with people talking about looking for him or missing him or whatever, um, you, you actually go through the whole experience you with him. You get in his shoes and yeah. his head. Yeah. And he, he didn't think that was objective enough? He didn't like the subjective idea at first? Well, it, it, to be honest, he just finished his book, so he was, he, he was in meticulous mode, you know, and he, was, he wanted it told in exactly the right way at that point. And I said, it won't be exactly the right way when we do it, if we do it, but it will be something that you'll be proud of in the end, and it'll be emotionally truthful. Um, but I said, uh, you, you've got to let an actor tell the story rather than you tell the story. So you've got to kind of lend it to someone. Anyway, we, 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 we couldn't agree, so we parted company then. And it was like three years later that we, 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 we came back together again, and he was much more... He changed a lot, actually, as a person. I think he'd met his wife, who'd completed the journey that you see. I mean, we compressed the journey in the film, in the, in the 90 minutes of the film. But he took him a couple of years in which he went through a, quite a low point, I think, after all the media attention died down. And he met his wife, and she was the kind of... Took him, finished the journey for him, I think. And so he was, a, he was a very different person. He was much more open to letting somebody else tell the story rather than himself, you know. It's my understanding that the, your film is both uh, incredibly accurate about many things like the things he carried in his backpack, but also uh, you invented some things. What, what were the inventions to kind of bring us into more uh, an emotional realism? Well, it's like at the beginning when he goes swimming with the girls, he did meet a couple of girls just before he had the accident, but they didn't go swimming, they went climbing. So we put swimming in because we wanted to saturate the beginning with water, which of course he was going to lack. Very, very soon he was just going to lack it. So we wanted to make it, as a, and the experience with the girls to be as sensual as possible. So that when he watches it back on the videotape, you know, it's like an overwhelming experience of sensuality and comfort and love and just something, you know, different to his, the desperate situation he's in. So that's like a, a change that we made. And we wanted it, it, it also... In his book, he is reckless, and he admits to a recklessness. And we sort of wanted to represent that in, rather than a backstory of a, an avalanche that he experienced and he, a couple of his friends were nearly killed in, which he sort of blames himself for. We thought we'll do it through this scene with the girls, but it's very pleasant, but it is quite reckless what he's doing. It's quite dangerous, and there is that side of him, you know, which, like, so we did things like that. And the video message that he leaves when he talks about being on a game show, uh, like a talk show host, is... That isn't one of the video messages he left. That's in a kind of invention. But it is kind of accurate, really, to how he was feeling. And he was hallucinating by then and, and, and trying to kind of cheer himself up sometimes and trying to leave messages that were very positive uh, so that his family, if they ever saw them after he died, would be left with a good impression of him, that he was dignified. and you know. So it, it's sort of like we eventually... We, we sort of worked our way towards the truth in different ways, really. That's what we tried to do. Because sometimes the truth doesn't look like the truth. Yeah. Tell us about the shooting. It's my understanding that you shot part of it in Canyonlands, but a lot of the Canyon stuff was on a set. Can you talk about that? We shot about a week in the Blue John Canyon itself, which is a very isolated part of Utah. Incredibly difficult to get to. And, to, and, and to how did you get there? We got the crew there by helicopter. We had to get people there by helicopter because you can't really drive to it. It's so inaccessible. You can only really walk to it or get to it by horse. And then we recreated the canyon in a, a warehouse in Salt Lake City. But we, we, we made the canyon solid, the set, so that you, 
So it wasn't a convenience set that the walls flew out or anything like that to let the camera in. It was as restrictive as the real canyon. And that was how the vocabulary of the film and the, the relationship between James and the cameraman evolved, you know. So what you see is that movement, the sense of movement in it is established because the fact they had to use small cameras in very confined spaces and they had to develop a, a kind of way of operating together. Now, you had two cameramen. You had Anthony Dodd Mantle, who shot Slumdog Millionaire, and Enrique Chediak. Why two cameramen, and what did each of them bring to the, the game? I thought, because there's only one character in it, I thought we need to create as much variety as possible. So I had this idea, which I thought was very clever of me, to have two cameramen. Because <laughs> <laughs> I thought, oh, one of them will be the good cop, and one of them will be the bad cop. James will like one of them and hate the other one, or... The style will be very different. One's a Northern European and one's a, from Ecuador, one's a Latin American. I thought the style will be. But you can't tell the difference between their work at all. It's completely, it's a complete failure on my part. Because actually what happened is the relationship they developed with James was, was the film, really. We, we would set up these long takes of, like, when he had to get out of the rock or rig the rock, he would just do it for, like, half an hour. And we wouldn't interrupt him. And James would just get lost in the process of doing it. And these... And then you'd edit those down into like 90 seconds or a minute, or, you know, what you see in the film. And that, was the, that became the style of the film. And that was eventually how we cut off the arm. We gave him a, we gave him a fake arm, which was, which was an, an absolute replica of a human arm. And, it went, and the knife, and it, he just went at it, really, and eventually cut it off. So that step back he does when he steps back, because we thought he wouldn't be able to get through it, and I don't think he thought he'd get through it either. So that look on his face when he steps back is astonishment on his part as well as acting. Yeah, he's, I mean, he, he's 100 pounds lighter. Yeah, he can, <laughs> he's mobile. Tell us how you came to cast James Franco. Well, we met him. We met him. I'd seen his work. I'd seen things like Pineapple Express. And, <laughs> and I, I thought, great, somebody who could do comedy. And then he does serious stuff as well, you know, and that's quite... Well, he was in Milk and he was fantastic. Yeah, yeah, and then James Dean and, like, Spider-Man and City by the Sea. And, you know, it's like, it's quite unusual to find a star actor who's got a big range like that. And I thought we're going to need that to create contrast in the role. Really. But we met him in New York, and he has this thing where he just looks stoned the whole time. <laughs> and he, he's like half asleep, and you think, does he even know I'm here? Um, and the first meeting was a bit like that, which wasn't very successful. But then we met him in that LA, and of course, I realised it's a front. He does this all the time. He's actually, his problem, if he's got one, is that he's kind of hyperactive. And he puts, well, he's in four different graduate schools yeah, right now. Just, yeah, and he puts up this front of being a bit stoned or somehow, that, so that you... So that he can sort of keep Hollywood at a distance, the whole, and yet use it if he wants it. So anyway, then we met in LA, and he read a bit of the script for us. He performed a bit of the script, and it was fantastic. And we cast him there and then, you know, or, or asked him to do it. Did yeah. you have any other actors in mind, or was he your first choice? No, we met a few. We met a few guys to begin with, and he was one of the first bunch that we met, really. And he was the one that popped out, really. Has been, and he, he also was fascinated by the process because he thought this idea of a one-man film and how we would go about that was really interesting for him, you know, to see how we could develop it. And, and it, become, it became something that we developed with him, you know, and, we, and we, we said to Aaron, this is how we want to do it, Aaron, and we'd like to have you around a bit to help us with certain things, but we didn't want you overshadowing the whole thing because it had to be James Franco's experience that people were going to watch, not James Franco doing a version of Aaron Ralston, really. So that's what it is, I think. Was Aaron on the set at all? He did come on a few times, yeah, um, different times. 
One extraordinary, I mean, he came when we were filming in the canyon. It, it was, I mean, it was a complete accident, this, but it, it happened to be the seventh anniversary of his entrapment, and he came down there for that during that day. So that's a weird day. Because he's dressed exactly like the T-shirt and, and the cap and everything are exactly the same. And he's also, we also had a stunt double. So Aaron Ralston walks on the set, and there's two of him in the real place where it happened seven years ago, standing there bleeding, appearing to bleed. It's must have been so bizarre for him looking at it. Yes. <laughs> you, a lot of your collaborators, uh, A.R. Rahman, who did the music, and Anthony Dodd-Mantle, and your screenwriter, Simon Beaufort, all worked with you on uh, Slumdog Millionaire. Does it make it easier, or do you have... Is it easier to communicate with collaborators you've worked with a lot, and did that make this shoot more economical in terms of communication? And one of the problems we, because of the big success we had with Sondo, one of the problems is that nobody, everybody's too polite to you suddenly. Everybody starts, everybody calls you Mr. Boyle suddenly. <laughs> and if you do ask any questions, you're not allowed to say, Mr. Please don't say <laughs> Only Mr. Boyle. Danny. And but seriously, another problem is you can't get. A, you can't get honesty out of people sometimes. And of course you avoid that. If it's people that you know already, they know, you know, you know you can talk to them honestly and they can talk to you honestly. And I, I much prefer that, that kind of atmosphere within the team that we're working in. Yeah, of course. So, thank you very much. I'm going to open this up to the audience. Okay, any questions? Yes, sir. Uh, my question, the opening of the film, with all the, the fast pacing and all the cuts and the different... Um, I have some ideas, but were you, were you, were you, were you trying to juxtapose the business compared to the, um, the quiet of going out to the canyons? I mean, like you had shots of fast food restaurants and shots of, of all of the uh, sporting events. What was the, the, the purpose, or what were you trying to say with that? Yeah, so it was, so, yeah, absolutely. We were trying to, we wanted to make the opening as pleasurable as possible, with all the pleasures of life in, you know, like modern life, modern city life, you know, which he, he imagines he's escaping from. But actually, it's sort of those people that pull him back in the end, that help him, you know, his place in life, really. So I'm not a big wilderness person at all. I didn't see it as a wilderness story. I, I saw it as an urban story and with an urban rhythm in it of ceaseless motion, even though it's static, you know, that it's not inert, it's keeping moving. And I wanted that beginning to feel like that absolute frenetic pace and really sexy and great to watch and good music and, you know, and then suddenly stops, you know, and so there's a great dynamic there that you're forced to confront, really. And also, you've got to be honest, with, to get an audience to watch a film like this, you've got to pleasure them, you know, you've got to, you can't be, you know, we're all going to get, we're all going to get tortured eventually in life, you know, so, you know, what you want to do is actually try and lure people in through it, through as much pleasure as possible, so that was the idea of it. But I, then I, I do believe, I, I, I do believe that we're all connected, really. I, it's a bit difficult to explain, but I, I, I do feel that the story is often um, portrayed as a, as a story of supreme individual heroism. I, I never saw it like that. I always thought he was like that when he first went in. He was like an amazing athlete. He was self-sufficient. He did ultramarathons in the desert. You know, he, he could do anything. And he changes, you know. He has to change, and he becomes more like one of us, really, by the end, you know. And, and, and the other thing I always thought is people say, oh, I, I could never do that. I, we could all do it. We'd all do it in the end. You know, you don't think you would now, but you would. The desperation pushes up to that point. Absolutely do it. In order to get back here into this city, 
with all these people, you'd do it, you know. And uh, you might die on the way, you might get unlucky, and, you know, he was lucky because he didn't bleed very much, and he ran into these Dutch people, you know, because he never climbed out of that other canyon. Um, so he got lucky like that, but we'd all do it, definitely. And that's one of the ideas of the film, is that we're all linked together somehow. That I wanted to ask you if you made a conscious decision, and this is sort of a very small detail, but the, uh, the display of the camera, usually in movies or in TV series, it's always like a fake recording light, uh, but you actually made it seem really realistic. Is that, was that part of your decision making, or? What, the, the, the camera that he, that he recorded his messages on? Yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, that's, a, that's the real camera. It's called a Canon Allura, and that's the real one that he took in there. And, and we recorded the messages on it, and sometimes we would, we would do shots of, when, when, our, when James recorded the messages on his own, we would all just clear out and let him leave the message on his own, and then I'd review it back again and have a look at what James has done, really. So he really was on his own performing those scenes. So yeah, it's, uh, and we, we used the real, um, we put in the real graphics and stuff like that to make it look as real as possible. And the quality is very poor, because that's what it is on that Canon Allura, you know? And that's what his, that's what his messages were like anyway, they were like that, really, yeah, so. Um, I know that you've been a supporter of digital filmmaking. Um, I was just wondering, especially given the, the prominent role that digital cameras have in the narrative of this film, yeah. if you could speak a little bit on the technology that you've yeah. used in this film and maybe the creative opportunities that it allowed. Yeah, we use, we use the cameras that we used. We used two sets of digital cameras that we used, well, actually three in the end. We used, it's called a Silicon Imaging 2K, and it's a very small camera, and it's still not in a housing you get all the bits separately, so you can make a very small unit of it to work with. And we use that to record, I guess, about 60-70% of the film. We use a Canon stills camera, which shoots 12 frames a second. And we shot about 10% of the film on that. And we use both those cameras in Slumdog in Mumbai. And then we also use... And that, that it gives a slight stuttering effect, but it gives an incredibly rich, crisp image as well. So it's a really interesting camera to use for different kind of visual effects in the film. And then obviously the Canon Allura was the other digital camera, the one that he recorded, and some of that footage that you see comes directly from that. And then we used a film camera for some other little bits and pieces, and you put them all together. And I think because people now, because of like YouTube and, you know, just, just everybody is prepared to accept different formats, you know, if, if you use them creatively, you can, you can mix them up in a film. And it helped us because, again, it was one of these hidden things by which we created contrast in the film. So it didn't... Because he's so static, the danger is that the film is inert. And you use these different techniques, the principal one being James's performance, but also music and different visual qualities in the camera to create variation, really. That was always one of the ideas of it going in, that we try and, we try and make it not unbearable by using those different things, you know? And a bit of Bill Withers and a bit of free blood at the beginning and, you know, stuff like that. What were the difficulties or opportunities of having a story where the majority of the audience knows the ending already coming into the film? I know, it's so bizarre, that, isn't it? Yeah. It's like, um, I don't know, cinema's weird, isn't it? You, you, you kind of get tense about things and yet you know the guy's not going to die because you know he's alive, it's like, and yet you still get tense about it. Well, I do anyway, I mean, I, I know the outcome of a story. And you know, I, it's weird, and yet, 
And anyway, you know it's Tom Cruise, and he's not going to die, and yet you get really tense. Well, maybe not Tom Cruise, but, you know, lots of people, you get really tense about it. You think, I don't want him to die. I don't want her to get hurt. Please don't get hurt. And it's an actress pretending to, you know, get hurt. And um, so it's funny like that. We suspend our, our disbelief, really. In, or in or we forget what we know. And yet we have a kind of amnesia about what actually happened somehow. And yet I don't think we do have an amnesia. I think our brain knows. And yet we want to suspend it so that we can experience it, you know. The other thing that's interesting about this story, I thought, was that... Because a lot of people, when we started setting it up, we were only really allowed to make it because Slumdog was a success. Because it's a very difficult movie to sell this for a studio. Because obviously, there's not a lot happens. He's stuck there the whole time, and at the end, he cuts his arm off. <laughs> and you can imagine him thinking, they said, and he cuts his arm off, yeah? And, we, and they said, and can we change that? I said, <laughs> and they said, well, you know, and they were very nervous about it. And yet, I said, there is something extraordinary about cinema, is that you come, I mean, not you tonight, because I, I think you've all got in for free. <laughs> when you go to the cinema, normally, you pay 12 bucks or 10 bucks, whatever it is, and you sort of imprison yourself in the cinema, in this black box. We sit in these black boxes, and we sort of imprison ourselves voluntarily. Unless it's really shit, you don't leave. Because you invest the $12 in it, you know? And it's like, you know, and you keep going with it. And I thought that's, it's sort of a bit like why these films work, I think. They can work. Is you sort of go, okay, let's do it. Let's, ha let's be trapped in this black box together for this amount of time. You know, there's something weird about it like that. I mean, not most of the time, obviously, it's because you want to see lots of different things and lots of changes. But I think that's one of the things that I... That was one of the ways I tried to sell it to the studio, you know. And, uh, it's, it's also a movie about community is better than isolation. Yeah. Asking for help is maybe sometimes better than being totally self-sufficient and disengaged and isolated. And those are kind of good messages for movie studios because you want to get a community in here. To be in the black box together. Yeah, they were still worried about him cutting his arm off the Well, I have to say, I told Danny before, when I saw it last week, I was clutching my seat so tightly I thought I was going to get RSI at the end. I, I was numb. I, I think the most impressive thing about your career is how seamlessly you move from one genre to the next. Uh, are there any genres that you're still afraid of or a little timid to approach? I'd love to do a musical. I mean, it's, 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 that isn't based on a stage show and isn't based on all music. It's based on a, it's original music and ordinary people burst into song and dance. That is the toughest thing to do, I think. I'd really love to do a musical. I'd pay $12 for that movie. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so you have such a wide range of genres and subjects that are your film zombies to space to soul dogs. What is it about a script or a project that attracts you to be a really good story? I mean, like, why do you fall in love with someone? It doesn't make sense to your friends, you know? And, like, they, really do. It's just like, they can't figure it out at all. But it's something about you just become obsessed, you know? And it's really important that you're not too clever about the way you make your choices. You know, you're not trying to figure out everything. You just, there's something about it that just makes you want to spend a year of your life doing it, telling it, you know? And then, if you're lucky, you, you can convey that. If it goes well, you'll, get, you'll be able to convey that somehow in the telling of the story, and people will sense that. And I think people do sense it. And it, and it is weird, and it's, un, it's unpredictable. And cinema is unpredictable. Otherwise, 
all the big movies would work all the time and there'd be no small movies, you know? Because there is that sense of unpredictability about it, that sometimes the big movies don't work, even though they're perfectly set up and prepared. You know, all the ingredients are correct. It doesn't quite work because there's something missing. And conversely, the little movies do work. Like, on the way here, I watched um, Winter's Bomb. You know, it's a tiny movie, a fantastic movie, really good movie. A wonderful performance by this girl in it. And things like that, you know, are just what makes cinema worthwhile, you know, as well. I also watched Toy Story 3, which was awesome as well, you know, in a different way. When you were writing the script, what did you base most of your material off of what you read? Did you sit down with Aaron and talk with him and talk Specifically, his formulation, did you running through that? I did a couple of drafts of the script, and I didn't really talk to Aaron. I, re I, I based that on the book. And then Simon Balfoy, who I'd asked to write the script in the first place, he said, I think you've got such a, a, a clear idea of how you want it to be. I think you should, he said to me, you should write a couple of drafts first. And then, if he, and then he felt he might be able to take over, which he did, thank God. And then he went to talk to Aaron, because he's a proper screenwriter, I'm not. I'm a kind of director, really, so I wrote a screenplay that was like, you know, full of visual images and the stuff I really get off on. And um, he went to talk to Aaron, and he really spent a lot of time with Aaron then, which is digging away, you know, a, a bit beneath the surface, really, about stuff. And, and really the stuff about the girl came out of that, really. You know, that he, there's this girl who, you know, he, he's not cruel to her, but he's casual with her affection and her love, you know, too casual really, as guys often are, I think. I mean, I've been in my life, and all that. I, that was something I related to, and Simon did as well, and you just, you know, and it's something that he did torment him, you know, when he was in that terrible situation, it, it, he began to learn from it, you know, that he had not been kind with her, really. And we used to end the film, the film had a different ending, actually. We had a long scene at the end where he went back to this girl, and basically said to her, I know I was a shit, but would you like to have a child with me? <laughs> and she said, no. <laughs> She's wise. But we, we didn't go with that ending in the end. This one, so it would be much better. But, yeah, that, I mean, that's what, that, that was the shape of it. So my material was very much based on Aaron's book. And the, the hallucinations, he does talk about some of them. We changed some of them. Um, like, I wanted to, when he, got, when he gets frightened and he sees Scooby-Doo in the night, Foot, I wrote that, that that was the raven, and, w and when he looked round, the raven was about six foot tall and was ready to eat him, really, which is the truth about nature. But Aaron, Aaron's relationship with that bird was very precious to him, because it was the only living thing he could relate to. And he said, I really don't want you to portray that bird as being malicious, you know, or being frightening. So he took that out and put Scooby-Doo in. <laughs> So what does this movie partially mean to you? Like, all the messages and stuff, you know? You know I, it was, I, for me, it was... Um, he, he is often portrayed in the media as an extraordinary individual who, had, who did this unique thing. Um, but my feeling was that that's what he went into the canyon as an extraordinary, self-sufficient individual. And actually what he became, the journey of the film, is he becomes more like one of us and that we all belong together. I believe that very, very strongly. It's a very passionate thing, I believe. It's interesting, he was, he's often compared to Lance Armstrong, yeah? Who also, you know, went through an extraordinary battle himself.
But Lance Armstrong's career is based on winning the Tour de France seven times. If you know anything about the Tour de France, it's the most amazing communal sport. Because the guys who win it, they have nine riders with them who get them to the finish. And the peloton is the most extraordinary thing, and they, get, they never lead anybody behind. Because if you drop back 20 minutes from the peloton, you're excluded from the rest of the race. But so the peloton makes sure that nobody ever drops 20 minutes behind. You know, and they keep, and I love that about that sport, you know, it's in, it, it is individual, and yet it's communal as well, you know, and I'm a big believer in that, and that's sort of what the film means to me, personally, yeah. Can you talk a little bit about um, the rehearsal period you have had in James Franco, and how did he actually get into that character? Yeah, he, um, he, I mean, we did a lot of, we, we, we talked to Aaron a lot, and we got Aaron to show us things. There's an extraordinary sequence where he, he rigs a rope, a pulley, to try and pull the rope, to pull the rock off, off his arm. And you've got to remember that's, it's very difficult to do with one hand. And he showed us how to do it, and he only showed James it once. And I remember watching James thinking he's not got that. He'll never, because I couldn't remember it. I thought he'll never remember how to do that. And we went to do the scene and he remembered it exactly. And that made me think he, this, this stoned persona He's a complete front. He's as sharp as a button, you know, learning and remembering things. So we would do we would do stuff like that, really, and then we just basically we just we we got in the canyon and we wouldn't even rehearse, really. We'd just start shooting, really, and you just drop the stuff that isn't very good, and we'd do these long, long takes where James would kind of just start to lose himself in it, really. And those are the bits that you pick out in the editing. The editing's really interesting because editing, normally editing is you cut from this person to that person and back and forward like that. And of course you can't do that because it's just one guy. You can't keep cutting to the rock because it's not very interesting really. <laughs> Two minutes, you know, it doesn't do very much. Um, so what we did is we cut, we, we ended up just moving James round the screen. We'd just move him round the screen into different places like that. And it was really interesting discovering a different style of editing like that. It's really wonderful. There's a guy called John Harris edited it. He edited, he edited Kick-Ass as well, if you ever saw Kick-Ass and The Descent he edited as well. So he's a very interesting editor and we had a great time doing that. Yeah. So that's all I can tell you. Well, ladies and gentlemen, thank you. Thank you.